Welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast. My name is Simon, and this is a podcast series exploring different policy issues from in and around the Brussels bubble. From November 6th to November 20th, over 35,000 climate professionals traveled to Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt to attend the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or more popularly known as COP27. And in the weeks of negotiation of the state of the planet, there were some notable results, as well as some omissions and commotion and all the other hubbub of 35,000 people gathering in one area. So, what was the experience of COP27 like? What were the successes and failures? And what did we learn about Europe's climate ambitions and policy? Helping me melt away some of the ice here and shed some light in this is Salome, who actually did the trip to Egypt to attend COP27 herself earlier this month. How are you doing today, Salome? Hi, doing well. Happy to be here in this uh, nice recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I suppose it's somewhat less exotic than Egypt, though. Because I, I, when I saw it was announced in Egypt, I'm like, oh, I'm quite jealous looking at the horrid weather in November in Brussels. But uh, did you get your tan there? <laughs> it was a bit of a climate shock coming back, to be honest, <laughs> coming back to the Christmas market when it was 30 degrees um, plus there. <laughs> It's yeah. quite nice and quite weird at the same time, right? Um, being in the middle of the desert to talk about climate change. I mean, we're going to talk about COP27 all episodes. So I'm going to take this little moment at the beginning to linger. Did you do anything in Egypt beyond COP27? Any, anything interesting or any sites you saw? Unfortunately, not. I was really hoping to travel a bit over the weekend. But as you may know, the negotiations finished quite late um, ah. on the Sunday. So didn't really have the time in the end, which is a pity when you actually fly all this way to yeah. stay in a resort hotel. Um, but yeah, maybe some other time. Fair enough, fair enough. I've always been personally, and last tangent before we get into this, I've always harbored a little fear of Egypt because they have these wicked little crocodiles, I think, right? Um, I believe they Not do. that I've seen. <laughs> but uh, you won't know it until you see it. That's what I say, because I'm, I'm terrified of those ancient crocodiles. They're <laughs> terribly old but uh, regardless Salome I have, we haven't properly introduced you yet but uh, do you want to tell the, the listeners the, the, a bit about who you are what you do in life how you found yourself in Brussels and consequently in Egypt um, yeah so I'm Salome I'm 24 I'm originally from Paris I have a background in law but also in uh, Middle Eastern politics which led me to travel quite a bit around the Middle East in Jordan I lived in Palestine as well um, which ultimately led me to Brussels. I did an internship at the European Parliament focusing on Middle East and especially on Palestine. And, well, as you probably know, you know, the climate change, human rights is really like, intertwined and linked, which then led me to focus more on sustainability issues and then started working for the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership in Brussels a few months ago. Interesting. I, I didn't personally make the connection between, I guess, the human rights, the uh, even Middle East studies and climate. So it's an interesting like dichotomy you bring up there. But uh, do you think that's impacted the way you do climate work a bit? Well, I think it is really important, right? Um, you can't just separate climate change from human rights, because unless you tackle the climate change issue, broader topic, I guess, then you won't be able to solve any human rights crisis, especially in the Middle East. It's really linked to water. You already have wider crises in Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, etc. It pushes you to have a more social understanding of, of climate change as well, as opposed to just an energy, fossil fuel, or 
yeah. whatever kind of approach. Kind of like they, everybody talks nowadays about like the new wave of rights, right? But like a right to not be impacted by climate change or a right to. But in a, it, it's quite interesting how that kind of overlaps and it brought you here. So you mentioned you worked at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. What do you do there? What, what's, what's your day-to-day look like? How, how do you contribute to the sustainability efforts? So I have different hats, I feel. I focus a bit on circular economy. We have a materials and products task force. I also focus a bit on sustainable finance. And now with COP, I guess, broader on climate issues, I'm really interested in uh, nature as well as food systems, agriculture. So hopefully we'll be doing more of this as well. Broadly, I guess it's more advocacy work, but also research, contributing to different reports, organizing events. I guess like a lot of people in Fox <laughs> in Brussels covers m- many different things. Yeah, no, that, that's always interesting being in a city. You can always find something to do if you're bored on a Wednesday evening. There's always some advocacy event going on somewhere. And the Brussels bubble is also quite small, right? You end up always seeing the same people at the same events and it's quite nice in a way to kind of, even though I've been in this field for only, I guess, a year, mm-hmm. kind of get to know the different faces around the Brussels sustainability bubble, which is nice. Interesting. But I guess suppo- I suppose recently your sustainability bubble got quite a bit bigger as you traveled to Egypt. You saw, I suppose, 35,000 new faces. <laughs> so I want to start with the personal bit. How was COP27 like from your perspective attending it for what it seemed to be the first time? It was mixed feelings of excitement, but also what am I doing here? How are we all flying uh, to Egypt? You know, like it's kind of weird. And then, as I said, it's also held in the middle of the desert, which feels kind of weird. Almost saying like, if we're not tackling this crisis right now, this is what the world might look like. So I thought that was interesting. And I was mainly in the blue zone which was really quite active. You had so many different pavilions tackling so many different issues, social issues, a bit of non-food as well. So real presence of civil society, which personally I don't feel was really reflected in the discussions and negotiations. It felt quite siloed, but I guess we can talk about this a bit more. Yeah, it's interesting you mention that because sometimes when you go to these events, it always feels like the civil society is given the booth outside or like, you know, the, the little thing on the way as you enter, but they're not invited into the door. So it's interesting that kind of feeling lingers to the COP27, which... I yeah, and as you said, you had so many delegates, so many people attending this COP. It was really massive and it did impact some of the negotiations as we're going to talk about this on loss and damage especially, but still felt a bit... I don't know, disconnected in a way. Yeah, I guess it must. I guess it must. And how long were you there? Were you there for an entirety of like, I think the almost 20 days it ran or? No. um, (laughs) No, I don't think I would have survived that. (laughs) (laughs) I arrived on the Saturday and left on the Sunday after. So a bit more than a week. I saw the people who were there for two weeks. They were barely alive at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, to the listeners, uh, she's looking a bit shell-shocked here, too, just uh, <laughs> recovering, I suppose, despite it being a week out. <laughs> but uh, so, so what exactly were you up to at the, comp- at the, at the COP27? So I was there alongside uh, four different colleagues and mostly focused at the beginning on event organizations. Mm-hmm. We had a few events we were organizing uh, as part of CSL. As the week continued, we started focusing more on 
the negotiations. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time to attend a lot of the sessions I wished uh, I could have attended. There were so many interesting things happening, but also so many pavilions. It was a bit overwhelming. And, you know, when you organize an event, I was mostly running around, trying <laughs> to find speakers, etc. Trying not to get lost in the middle of all the pavilions, mainly. I want to dive into the meat a bit of this podcast, where we're going to look at, I suppose, the main lessons we learned from COP27, or even your main observations and themes that you experienced while you were at there. So, Salome, I'm going to leave this a bit up to you, how you want to tackle this, because I'm going to leave it a bit broad. But at COP27, what do you, what did you observe the main points of discussions and themes to be? So, obviously, quite a lot was discussed, and it was an African COP. So the main uh, focus, one of the main focuses, was on loss uh, and damage. Mm -hmm. But then there was also quite a lot on trying to keep the ambition towards the 1.5 degrees goal. Some call it a goal. I think it should be a limit. We all realized during this COP how fragile it was. You had a lot of delegations who went to COP trying to water down this ambition. Then you had a lot on fossil fuels, you had a lot on gas, you had a lot on adaptation. And I think, well, we can delve into the kind of outcome as well, which for most people were a bit disappointing. Let's go by the main themes you identified, Mm -hmm. Dan, and just focus on each one for a few minutes. Because we started with the one that grabbed all the headlines, because it's, I suppose, it's the only real success (laughs) that came out of it was the loss and damages of fund. Yeah. So, Developing countries have been asking for loss and damage finance and a fund for loss and damage for over 30 years, which was blocked by many rich countries, including the US, including a lot of EU countries. Um, So in a way, the creation of the loss and damage fund was a real breakthrough and, dare I say, the only success of this (laughs) COP. Um, So it's a fund to help them cover the cost of climate change impact. However, I think it's a bit of a bittersweet like success in the sense that yes okay fair there's a fund but where the money is going to come from how it's going to work etc is all left to a committee that is going to kind of tackle this so it's really broad we don't know uh, how it's going to work and yeah leaves a lot of uncertainty around it yeah because i was doing a bit of background reading because this, this seemed to be the main takeaway from my own observations as well and Apparently, I think there was apparently pleasure on 260 million by EU countries, 170 million of that coming from Germany alone. So it kind of sets some of the climate ambitions within Europe a bit. But in a way, it still shies in comparison to the amount of money that is actually needed. Yeah. And I think although many developing countries really welcome um, this outcome, I think a lot more should also be done on mitigation, right? Mitigation and loss and damage are really intertwined. And I mean, if you don't mitigate the impact of climate change, there won't be enough money for loss and damage. It's just going to be too big of a thing to tackle, right? Exactly, exactly. And I suppose mitigation was also a larger theme within COP27. Were were there any interesting takeaways on that point as well from, uh, I suppose, the developing or developed a economy here they adopted a work program Mm -hmm. so like a a mitigation work program was adopted uh, if i recall correctly at cop 26 but not much has been done about it at cop 27 so it's still kind of this very broad issue and not much attention has been given to it and i think it's a it's a it's a real problem not much attention has been given either to food agriculture yeah which is one of the most important to me, like solution yeah. to climate change, really. 
No, definitely. I, I have been emphasizing importance of food security for a while, personally. I, we did an episode a little while back, about a month ago, on food security with uh, one of the food security reporters from Your Active, uh, oh, Natasha Foote, uh, which is a really cool episode, just tackling it. And I suppose, on that note, do, do you know any of the takeaways also from COP27 on food security? and Anything you want to highlight? Yes. So I'm personally really interested in agriculture, regenerative agriculture, etc. So in a way, uh, the fact that food alone was on the agenda at COP27 is a success because it's the first time that it was even in the COVID decision, right? It's the first time that you had food pavilions. If I remember correctly, you had three different ones. You also, the, the only protesters we saw at COP as well were vegan protesters outside the venue who were there every day dressed as uh, cows, uh, dying of heat in there. But, I mean, they were the only ones being noticed, right? So it shows that food is kind of moving up uh, in, the, in the agenda, which I think is really good. Agriculture and food security were given stronger mandates at COP27 with the, I can't remember how it's called, Coronivia work program given an extension. However, it's still very, very broad. The, the, the outcome is broad. Fair enough, they mentioned food, but there's not a lot on land use. There's barely anything on regenerative agriculture. I think it's a touchy topic that most people don't want to tackle, right? People's diets. It's quite complex. Yeah, because I feel like it's also a bit of an offshoot of the the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine, which has really propelled this issue back into the spotlight. And it, it is kind of nice to see some, I guess, topical focus adjusting to, you know, worldwide events within these conferences. But it's also... More should have been done because of food security crisis. I know here in Europe we're seeing inflation rising prices, but in other countries, in much of the developing world, they're suffering from uh, food shortages. They're suffering from famines. And that is something that, I guess, can be addressed under these forms. So, Exactly. Yeah. And Egypt, out of all countries, is yeah. really hardly touched, right? Uh, impacted. Um, same with other Middle Eastern countries who obviously rely on Ukrainian, like, imports from Ukraine, wheat import especially uh, for bread. So, of course, this impacted the agenda. And, well, agriculture represents, I think, about like 27 to 30 percent of global emissions. So it has to be Mm -hmm. tackled. But in my opinion, it's just still too broad, doesn't provide any concrete solutions. And you have loads of solutions being implemented all around the world with regenerative agriculture, with permaculture which just weren't being tackled. And, I mean, just a fun example is only one pavilion had vegan milk, oat milk, mm. which I think says a lot about the, the attention being given to this yeah, issue. definitely, definitely. I, I'm tempted to make more of a not off-color joke and ask if you got your allotted lunches at the, at the COP27, because <laughs> <laughs> I heard they suffered from literal food shortages there too. But Yes, yeah, so fortunately for me, um, it got better during the second week. So there was a lot of improvement during the second week, starting with vegan food, because apparently they didn't have any during the first week. So I got lucky there. Um, Massive lines to get food. So sometimes it was a bit difficult, but at least it was there. Yeah. Talking about utter disappointments now, I think one of the ones you alluded to in the beginning was the the lack of the 1.5 degree target or limit, as you were calling it, within any of the negotiations. Can you tell us a bit about the timeline of the whole 1.5 debacle? Because it, it culminated in some spicy moments, I suppose. Yes, uh, I guess it was kind of not a sore spot, but really <laughs> tricky one where the EU threatened to walk out of the mm-hmm. room 
if the 1.5 language was really watered down. So I think that's what kept us awake <laughs> at night uh, towards the end. But that was not the only issue that kind of kept the negotiations going. It was really loss and damage. Who is going to pay for the loss and damage fund, right? Um, there's also obviously the um, definition of developing countries and developed countries was set up, I think, in 92. So obviously China and Saudi are still uh, considered developing countries. So under this framework, they should receive money under, under the loss and damage fund, which was kind of an issue, right? Because they are big polluters as well and should now, in my opinion, contribute and pay these uh, developing countries suffering the impacts of climate change. Yeah, I was reading a study earlier this week on who, who should, in theory, be the largest contributors based on emissions, pollutions, etc. And America is obviously number one, followed by China, Brazil, Russia, Indonesia. All of these are distinctly middle powers nowadays who are still using that developing terminology to kind of, you know, skim the... Exactly. And yeah. I mean... The U.S. for the last 30 plus years was also vividly opposing fun and loss and damage. So you might also say that the fact that John Kerry got COVID towards <laughs> the end uh, weakened the U.S. position. He was negotiating over mm -hmm. the phone, right? So between this and Timmermans, who threatened to walk out of the room, I think it really helped getting this agreement on loss and damage. How successful do you think this will actually be to this tool? Because I... I one of the other examples that people like to point to in regards to here is I think the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Summit where they, where states agreed to raise $100 billion a year to help poorer countries adapt to a warmer world, of which we've seen maybe $2 billion, <laughs> something like that. Exactly. Obviously, countries didn't deliver on their promise to fund climate finance of €100 billion Euros a year. And so this raises the question as to how this fund is going to work, right? Is, is it going to replace other funds? Hopefully not. Um, Germany announced a new initiative called the Global Shield, which is a good thing, uh, but also insurance can also be a burden for um, developing countries. So it shouldn't be the only solution. So I guess it remains to be seen what the Egyptian presidency will do over the next year. Uh, yeah. to set up this fund. I mean, to quote the foreign minister, I believe, he had a juicy quote, I think, at the ending ceremony or wherever. Uh, he said, we rose to the occasion <laughs> about the <laughs> conference. So, And I mean, I'm not so optimistic as well because, well, the next COP is going to be held in Dubai. So really? the UAE being obviously a massive oil producer. And we al already saw the, 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 the presence of oil and gas lobbies at this COP, so it kind of raises a question as to how the next COP will, um, will evolve. Yeah, I, I mean, even personally, we, we talked several times again about the missions of flying there and keeping these conferences running. It's, it's crazy how we're holding these huge events in the middle of, like, what needs to be air-conditioned buildings, private venues built for them sometimes. I saw the statistics because I am still in my World Cup obsessed mode where some guy tweeted out that, I, don't, I didn't fact check this, but it seems credible, that the World Cup is the single biggest polluting event other than a world, than other than a war. And wow. Stuff like that, if we keep doing these climate conferences locations like these, it's Exactly. It's and I mean, you had, I think, over 400 jets, private jets, Real? there at COP. Private I mean, jets. Exactly. Uh. It's, it's just ludicrous. And... Of course, there is value in having um, these big gatherings, presence of its civil society on the ground. But 
I don't know, maybe this kind of cumbersome, massive summit doesn't work. Maybe the format doesn't work. Maybe we should, I don't know, have smaller committees, delegations working on different topics, like one on energy, one on agriculture, um, and so on, which would, I guess, work on this specific topic and deliver on an outcome that is just, I guess, more workable having an agreement that will actually be implemented within each country as opposed to having this kind of big spectacle. No, I know what you mean, because it's oftentimes the, spe- the spectacle over like overshadows the actual work being done and the policy and, and the stuff going forward. Hmm. So I want to start wrapping up a bit. And the question I normally like to ask is how successful COP27 was. But I suppose from the vibe you've been having throughout the podcast, I feel like people can kind of guess what your response here is. But I think bef- I, th- I think we need to talk first a little bit about what success for COP27 or COP conference in general would look like. So what would success have looked like going into COP27? I think now people look at, you know, mostly the COVID decision, which is a big summary of uh, the COP outcome. And I think right now it looks at mere words, if I may. So yeah. some, something really concrete um, leaving COP saying, okay, we don't just have uh, a fund, but how will this fund uh, be set up? Who will be given the money? Um, so I, I think something more tangible, uh, mm-hmm. which I believe we didn't have um, at COP27. Yeah, because that tangibility in itself, that will, that, I think that is the thing that will drive progress forward because we've been making for the past 20, 30 years. We've just been agreeing to, oh, we'll abide by this cap. Oh, we missed that. We'll abide by the next one. It's, it's kind of sad. It's kind of depressing. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I suppose to ask the question, did COP27 achieve this success or did it achieve any success? In, in the sense that the loss and damages fund we're looking at somewhat positively, but there's still a lot of issues and concerns you have in your mind. So is that a success? Is there any other successes we should take note of? I think the fact already that um, the deal says that uh, safeguarding food security as well as ending hunger should be a top priority is a success. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doesn't really matter right now, I guess, if there is no clear or tangible um, recommendation. At least it's on the agenda, which I think is really important. And as we said already, the creation of a loss and damage fund will hopefully lead to something more tangible and is being applauded by many, many countries. And I think the EU really stepped up as well. Also agreed to increase their NDCs uh, to uh, 57%. So I think, you know, the EU has a real role to play. Obviously, right now with the key negotiations on the remaining Fit for 55 files, but you know, there was a big success for the file on cars, which led to the EU increasing its uh, NDC. So I think there, there are some, although little, uh, successes at COP. So you think that EU, the EU may be emerged as like the, the most prominent or most successful actor, I suppose, at the COP27. Can, can we be happy as Europeans sitting here in Brussels? I think um, the EU left a bit disappointed, really, uh, yeah. because obviously... A lot of countries showed up wanting to water down the ambition. But I guess the EU held a fort. I think 
the countries which really accomplished something there were mostly developing countries. And I think that's also where you saw the influence of civil society on the ground. And that's where you realize that maybe actually it's useful to have these massive delegations because you had such pressure being put on delegates from developing countries as well as from the civil society there on the ground that, yeah, maybe that is what put the real pressure to... <laughs> deliver on loss and damage. So we need bigger conferences with smaller working groups with bigger delegations. Yeah, but I guess not, it's, but it's a bit of a... But not using private jets. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that one. Yeah, yeah. So in that note, what do you want to see at COP28 beyond it maybe not being held at Dubai? Or are you excited to go to Dubai if you're going to it again? <laughs> I mean, on a more personal thing, uh, I'd love to go to Dubai. But what I'd like to see maybe is, I guess less space given to these massive oil and gas lobbies, which I think will be present, obviously, in the UAE. I think the UAE were already given like a preferential treatment from Egypt. Egypt receives a lot of funds from oil states. It's also a big gas exporter. So I think more on fossil fuels. Um, right now, the language on fossil fuels is ambiguous at best. So I guess more on mitigation. The fact that so far we've never had a COP uh, agreement actually calling to uh, phase out all fossil fuels, right? At COP26, the agreement called for phase down of coal. But here, we, we need more than just phasing down of coal. We're phasing down or out of all fossil fuels, which has been completely scrapped from the COVID decision and is really um, a pity. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, and on those uplifting notes, <laughs> I think that's about wrapping up the substantive part, unless there's anything else you want to add. Anything positive? <laughs> well, hopefully this fund will uh, see the light of day sooner rather than later. And we hope to see more on all these great initiatives on agriculture, on food, on carbon capture as well. You know, yeah. it's the first time that we even mentioned uh, forestry. Lula was present talking about uh, deforestation. So it's happening slowly but surely it is. There we go. There we go. <laughs> if only we can beat it in time. Uh, but I suppose if you're curious still about these developments, I, I suppose the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership is, is a good resource, right? Uh, anything you want to plug that you guys are doing recently? Anything you're working on? Well, I think our uh, delegation organized great events um, on the grounds. We had the Energy Commissioner, we had a close round table with various ministers, all uh, calling for a high ambition. So hopefully the EU will be able to walk the talk and deliver on these outcomes. Fair enough, fair enough. And final question. We always like to wrap up a more fun, personal, <laughs> you know, not affiliated with the main topic question. And I kind of made this one up on the spot, I, I will say, because I, you, you heard about my phobia of ancient crocodile creatures. <laughs> what creature would you be most happy if the climate crisis got to it? Wasps. Wasps. I absolutely hate wasps. And with longer summer or like hotter summer, they don't really die at the end of summer. So you see them for a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I don't hate wasps. I'm more impressed by them. Apparently, they have nine brains across their spine. Oh, wow. Which increases their reflexes to be super quick. So it's kind of like, you know, when you, you hit, like, your elbow, the reflex doesn't go to your main brain. It hits, like, a little nerve thing. With the brain scattered across, its reflexes are super quick. I, I know as a vegan, I should um, probably love them all, but really want <laughs> to just, fair like... Enough. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I suppose like little crocodiles. Those things have been around way too long. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> they deserve their time. But, yeah. 
And I suppose I think this wraps it up. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe. If you want to be on the podcast, please let me know. My email's in the description below. And thank you, Salome, for taking some time out of your COP27 recuperation schedule <laughs> to join me here today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. No worries. Well, till next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.